going to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. I think it. Believe me, if I started murdering people, there'd be none of you left. <laughs> Hello, friends and enemies. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Exploring Evil. As always, I'm your host, Jay, and through this podcast, I bring you stories of lesser-known serial killers, the wild, the wicked, and the depraved. I would like to extend an invitation to subscribe to the show so you won't miss a single episode. Leave a five-star rating and write a review as it will help new listeners find the show. I've also started another, more discussion-based podcast on the paranormal. With my co-host Ryan, I discuss the paranormal like UFOs, reincarnation, black-eyed kids, my nights as a ghost hunter, and lucid dreams. We also did a show on legendary bluesman Robert Johnson and his deal with the devil. The show is called Cryptique, and you can find it everywhere you find Exploring Evil. As far as Exploring Evil goes, you can email comments, questions, and case suggestions to exploringevil at gmail.com. If you want to start your own podcast, I can help with editing, original music, sound effects, and mastering, so shoot me an email. Tonight's show was suggested by Connor from The Land Down Under in Adelaide, Australia. Connor would also like a show on Ivan Malat, the backpack killer who kidnapped and murdered backpackers in Australia's Belongolo State Forest between 1989 and 1992. My friend Sarah, who asked for a shout-out on the show, wants to hear about Rebecca David and the suicide of her family from jumping off a hotel balcony, so keep an ear out for that one. Imagine, you wake up to a sight you never dreamed you would see. A man who says he loves you, the father of your beloved children, is standing over you. His fingers are white as snow from his death grip on the pillow he's holding. Your eyes bulge and you suck in a deep breath. It will be your last. He quickly forces the pillow over your face as he climbs on top of you and uses his weight to force the pillow down on you. What thoughts would rush through your mind? Your children, their milestones, their birthdays? It's all so surreal. Why is the man you love taking your life? So you fight to push him off of you, but he's too big and too strong. The last thing you remember is tears rushing down your cheeks as you succumb to the lack of oxygen. It all goes blank. This is the case of Jack Barron and the family he slowly annihilated. And this is Exploring Evil. Munchausen syndrome by proxy is a mental illness in which one who cares for others, and I use the term care loosely, hurts or kills people in their care for attention or sympathy. It's normally highlighted when a child's caretaker does things to make a child appear to be sick or have disorders that they don't actually have. It's often characterized by frequent trips to the doctor or emergency room. Caretakers may even convince the child to feign symptoms to medical professionals. Usually, the caretaker commits these acts to garner attention or sympathy and to be seen as a hero or something of that sort because of all they've been through in providing care for this person. Jack Barron took things a step further. He killed his victims, allegedly to gain sympathy for the grief he endured by going through the tragedy 
It was June 1992. Rap was starting to dominate the charts with one-hit wonders like Baby Got Back by Sir Mix-a-Lot and Batman Returns was topping the movie ranks. It was also the year Jack Barron lost his wife and he was greeted with deep sympathy from the community. Barron was at work when his wife's body was found by a neighbor. His wife Irene's personal effects included an undated letter she had written to Barron. The letter read, We usually have so much fun together. We have so much to be happy and thankful for. Two great kids, a home, family, and friends, and what I thought was a very strong love for each other. My feelings for you have not changed, but since you won't open up to me, I really don't know where your head or heart is at. It really upsets me when I hear you talk about divorce. I can't believe you are really serious about that. If you are, then you have had me and everyone fooled for a long time. Things have been so good for us for so long. You don't just wake up one day and suddenly decide something like that. If you're upset about something else like work, I can understand that. I know how hard it's been on you lately. I would really like to be able to help. But if what you said to me this morning is all that is upsetting you, then I'm sorry and I will try and do better. I only ask that you take into account and realize that I have a stressful job too, and sometimes I can use your support and understanding as well. Please talk to me, and let's resolve this and get back to the way we used to be together. I really do love you so very much and the kids, and I need you. All my love, Irene. Jack Barron sounded panicked, when he telephoned his in-laws on June 8, 1992 from a neighbor's home in South Sacramento. Irene's mother, Norma Padgett, remembered Jack said, You gotta get over here, quick! Why? Padgett asked, why? Irene's dead, Barron said, and quickly hung up. Padgett and her husband sped to South Breeze Drive, where their daughter Irene Barron had just been found dead on a waterbed in the home's master bedroom. Irene was lying on her back sideways across the bed, with her legs hung over the bed frame. Her death was described as mysterious, and the coroner could not determine the cause of death. The only evidence was her makeup-stained bloody pillow and some petechial hemorrhaging, which doesn't seem so mysterious to me. Petechial hemorrhaging, as you probably know, is the bursting of capillaries, usually in the eyes, which often denotes strangulation. The pillow was actually over her face when the neighbor discovered her body. She either smothered herself with her own pillow, or someone else did. Given the fact that it would be all but impossible to smother yourself to death with a pillow, that leaves only the latter. Someone else. It seems too easy. One thing the successful detectives seem to have in common is that they treat every suspicious death as a homicide from jump. But no matter what detectives believed, they didn't have enough evidence to charge Jack because he was at work when the murder or mysterious death supposedly had taken place. After his wife died, poor Jack Barron found himself with no one to babysit his kids. Starla Hayes, a mother of two, faced the same problem. She and her husband had separated. She and her two children moved into Barron's three-bedroom home several months after Irene's death. 
The two agreed to share childcare duties. Hayes said she and Barron began having sex. The housing arrangement wasn't working. A couple of months after moving in, Hayes moved out. February 1993, Jack Barron's four-year-old son Jeremy stopped breathing in his sleep. Jennifer Johnson worked as a babysitter for Jack Barron who worked the night shift. On Saturday night, February 6th, Jennifer arrived at the usual time, but something wasn't right. No one seemed to be home. She knocked on the front door and waited, but there was no answer. Jennifer sped home and called Jack Barron as soon as she arrived home. He answered the home phone and said that he must have been in the shower when she knocked. He asked her to come back. She returned and Jack told her that he had sent the kids to their room to sleep. Jennifer went with Jack to check on them, and it looked like they were both sleeping peacefully. Jack left her in the living room and went for a quick nap before his night shift at Lucky's grocery store began where he was an overnight stalker. Ashley woke up, and Jennifer herded her back to her bedroom she shared with her brother Jeremy. He was still in the same position as before, but Jennifer had a bad feeling. She went closer to check on him, and he was unresponsive. Jennifer ran to Jack's bedroom to tell him that something was wrong with his little boy, then rushed to the phone to dial 911. The 911 operator told her that she or Jack needed to immediately perform CPR on Jeremy. Jennifer hurried back to the room and told Jack he needed to try to revive his son. He went into the children's room, had one look at Jeremy, and refused. Jennifer couldn't believe Jack was unwilling to try CPR. Jack left the room and coldly told Jennifer it was too late. Jeremy was no longer alive. Jack claimed it was some genetic link heart condition that was killing his family. Starla Hayes told a judge soon after his wife's death, Barron made a disquieting remark to Jeremy, three years old at the time, for crying about his mommy. Jack shouted, If you don't shut up, I'll send you to where mommy is. I'd do away with her first, Jack remarked to another witness in regards to getting a divorce. Barron made a remark in a similar vein to his co-worker, Stuart Tusher, after Tusher stated he did not believe his former wife was properly using his child support payments. Tusher was shocked by the remark and its eager, confident delivery. I know it's hearsay, but this paints a portrait of the type of person we're dealing with here. A man that would threaten his own son with death? And then that son dies. John C. Pageant, Irene's brother, said he became suspicious of his brother-in-law because of what he believed was an odd reaction to Jeremy's death. He didn't seem to have a grasp on the trauma that the rest of us in the family were experiencing, Paget said. He was at times almost euphoric with the attention he was getting with all of their deaths. This has to be taken seriously. But this doesn't. Barron appeared to have developed a creepy fascination with Winona Judd. The country singer sent him backstage passes after receiving letters entailing the deaths in his family. The singer was touched by Jack's loss and gave him concert tickets and even called him on the phone later to express her condolences. After that, Jack took down all the pictures of Irene in the house and replaced them with pictures of Judd. He even started telling people that he and Judd were dating something people who knew him just blew off as his typical need to be the center of attention. On one of those occasions, Barron, wearing a t-shirt reading, 
wise guy was photographed with Winona and Ashley. Back to the real story in just a minute. Hey friends and enemies, thanks for listening to Exploring Evil. If you haven't already done so, check out my other podcast, Cryptique. My co-host Ryan and I just did a show on the real-life Black Mirror. You can also hear stories of black-eyed kids, reincarnation, and legendary bluesman Robert Johnson. Find out if he sold his soul to the devil by checking out Cryptique. By all accounts, Barron's mother doted over him, letting him live at home until he married in his mid-twenties and helping him out financially. Barron's father, on the other hand, had no desire to have contact with his young son. His ex-wife had to go to court to force Jack's father to fork over child support payments. Yet Jack Barron tried to emulate his father, not his loving mother. Barron's father virtually disappeared from his life after Jack and his mother moved from Southern California to Susan City between San Francisco and Sacramento. Roberta went to work for a Safeway to make ends meet while her son attended Armijo High School. Just before Jack Barron began his senior year in high school, he and his mother moved to Port Costa, and Barron transferred to John Sweat High School in Crockett. Barron did not appear to mix well with others. He was always a loner, his aunt said. He didn't have friends in high school. Roberta said it was because they moved. He had no girlfriends. After graduating in 1980, Barron stayed in Port Costa living with his mother. He wanted to follow in his father's footsteps and become a railroad engineer. Barron was hired by a railroad company in 1984, but as a laborer, not an engineer. That career proved short-lived, however, when he filed a disability claim and left the company in January 1986, a railroad spokesman said. After leaving the railroad, Barron mostly worked for grocery stores, but he was still devoted to trains. The next month, Barron met Irene Pageant, who shared a residence with her friend Denise Eichmeyer in Sacramento. Irene Pageant was described as a very sweet woman by friends and relatives. She was the youngest of four children born to Norma and Jack Paget. Born in Reno, Irene was a toddler when she and her family relocated to Germany due to Jack Paget's Air Force career. After two and a half years, the family returned to America, with Paget retiring from the military in 1964. Irene spent her teenage years in Fallbrook, California, north of San Diego. Irene won the title of Miss Fallbrook 1974, as a high school senior. In 1976, Irene married for the first time, but the marriage lasted just a few years. In January 1986, Irene and her best friend Denise Eichmeyer moved to Sacramento. We decided we needed a bigger town than Fallbrook, said Eichmeyer. They lived in a friend's Greenhaven home before moving into their own apartment. Irene had become an office receptionist, Eichmeyer a secretary. Irene met Jack Barron in February 1986 through a mutual friend acting as a matchmaker, Eichmeyer said. The couple were married in 1988 in Mount Shasta. At the reception, attended by 50 guests, Roberta Butler, Jack's mother, expressed her appreciation to Irene's father, Jack Pageant. When I was dancing with her, Roberta told me, 
Thank you for giving me such a beautiful daughter, something I've always wanted, Paget said. The Pagets, on the other hand, did not get along well with the groom. But my daughter liked him, so we tried to like him, Norma Paget said. In 1989, after living in Mount Shasta, the newlyweds moved to Sacramento. Jack worked as a part-time stock clerk in supermarkets, and eventually they bought the three-bedroom house on South Breeze Drive. It was a difficult purchase, Jack Paget said. It wasn't like they walked into a realtor's office and said, okay, we want to buy this house. With Jack's salary, they had to qualify for some type of special program for low-income home buyers. To help pay the bills, Irene opened a daycare service in her house. She took care of neighborhood kids along with her own. It was also stated that Jack was very anxiety-ridden when it came to cleaning. When his wife would vacuum, he'd follow behind her and rub out the carpet tracks. Irene's best friend, Denise Eichmeyer, briefly shared a Citrus Heights house with Irene and Jack Barron in 1987 before the couple married. In an interview, she called Barron a clean freak who wanted everything from the dishes to the floor as clean as possible. And everything had to be in the right place, she said. If you came home from work and put your purse down on the couch, Jack would have a fit. He would say, put this away, put this away. Eichmeyer, who eventually married businessman Cliff Cowell, would help out the Barons from time to time watching their children. Both children loved playing with water, but their father disliked it because it got them dirty. One day, Jack arrived at our house and saw Jeremy playing with the water hose in the backyard, Cal said. Jack got angry. After that, every time Jeremy and Ashley came over, we would let them play with the hose, but we would make sure they were cleaned up before Jack got home. Jeremy and Ashley often used the swimming pool at their grandparents' former apartment in Citrus Heights, Norma Paget said. Sometimes Irene would bring them over, and we just kind of held them in the pool as the two children splashed in the water. Jeremy was fascinated by his toy train, a love he shared with his father. One of his favorite TV shows was Cops. He used to sing the Cops song when the program would come on, Norma Paget said. Both children watched cartoons. Ashley had a collection of Disney movies, including The Little Mermaid. Sounds like a pretty good life to me. I remember when my girls used to love Disney. But it was not to be. After the mysterious death of his wife and the death of his son, tragedy would play out again. August 1994. His beautiful daughter Ashley was found deceased in her bed, just like her mother and her brother before her. On August 6, 1994, Barron's mother, Roberta Butler, returned Ashley to the defendant after having had her for about three weeks. Ashley appeared healthy at this point. Barron, however seemed irritated. Jill Presley, a babysitter who had worked in the healthcare field for 20 years, arrived on August 6th, a little after 10.15 p.m., to watch Ashley. Barron said that Ashley was asleep and that he had just checked on her. Shortly before midnight, Presley glanced into Ashley's room. Ashley appeared fine and was on her side. Jack then offered the nurse a glass of iced tea which the babysitter said was unusually strong. He then warned her not to go to sleep. Presley at some point then fell asleep. When she woke up around 4 a.m., she discovered Ashley lying dead on her back. Her body was, quote, very stiff. Gregory Reber, a forensic pathologist, performed Ashley's autopsy. Before concluding his report, 
he reviewed Irene's and Jeremy's autopsies. Reber could not determine what caused Ashley's death, but specifically noted that homicidal violence could not be excluded. At the reception, after Ashley's funeral, Jack Barron reportedly seemed almost happy. He laughed and joked with friends. He wore his wise guy t-shirt and loudly boasted about the large flower arrangement Judd had sent. Now more people were beginning to raise suspicions. Each one of the Barons had either died or been found on a Sunday that was the 7th of the month, the same day as Jack's estranged father's birthday. Each time, Jack seemed progressively less upset, though he talked at great length about what an ordeal he had been through and how hard it was on him. It wouldn't be the last mysterious death in his family. Barron decided to move in with his mother, Roberta Butler, after Ashley's death. Barron was residing with his mother in Benicia while he completed his probationary training as an assistant conductor for Amtrak. Then, Jack Barron's mother, Roberta Butler, was discovered lifeless in her waterbed in her Solano County condo. According to co-workers, when leaving work at 10.15 p.m., Butler appeared upbeat and made no complaints about her health. But Barron told police that when his mother returned home from work on that Sunday, she told him she was stressed out, had a headache, and felt out of shape. Barron said he left for work at 4.50 a.m. and then returned at 2.17 p.m. to find his mother not breathing. At 2.21 p.m. on February 27th, emergency personnel responding to a 911 call from Barron found Butler dead, lying diagonally across her bed, face up. Butler was 52 years old and in good health. The Pagets also have fond memories of Roberta Butler. Roberta was a lovely person, Norma Paget said. We enjoyed visiting with her a number of times. Mostly, we would see her at Jack and Irene's home. Roberta was real nice to be around. Barron was arrested five months after the death of his mother. Barron again blamed the loss of his family on hereditary heart disease. Investigators and others say the motive for the slayings was Barron's hatred of his father, who divorced Barron's mother and then abandoned him. He also wanted out of his marriage. Before trial, the prosecutor pointed to insurance money as an additional motive, saying Barron was the beneficiary of life insurance policies and death benefits totaling more than $170,000. Two life insurance policies were included in Butler's $126,800 estate, according to Jim Nord, court-appointed administrator of Jack's mother's estate. Still others believe Barron is the first male murderer known to suffer from Munchausen by proxy, where a person causes illness or death to a loved one in order to attain sympathy. Jack Barron, Irene's husband and father of both children, won on trial for their deaths. If convicted in two of the three killings, and if one of the convictions is for first-degree murder, he might face the death penalty. When the trial began, Prosecutor John O'Mara did not make an opening statement summary of what the evidence will show, but he had previously pointed at several motives, including Barron's alleged desire to get out of his failing marriage. You can read about people dying unexpectedly all the time, but four deaths in the same family within four years? O'Mara said at Barron's 1996 preliminary hearing, all were in bedclothes, all were last seen alive by Jack Barron and all were found dead in their beds. The challenges of the case were underlined by O'Mara. 
Asphyxial death by suffocation or smothering is a very subtle kind of death that frequently leaves no signs, O'Mara said at a hearing in 1999. And when signs are left, they are subtle at best. For Norma and Jack Paget, now of Grass Valley, the trial they attend on a regular basis was long overdue. Both expressed relief that it had begun. We're getting older. We couldn't have waited indefinitely, said Jack Paget. Barron was also pleased that he was finally on trial, defense attorney Eulid M. Romero said. He's had to wait all this time to go to trial, Romero said. He's happy that it's underway so he can present his side of the story. First to testify for the prosecution was his former neighbor, Christina Hamilton, who found Irene Barron dead on her waterbed with a makeup-smeared pillow over her face in 1992. Also testifying were the two babysitters. Jennifer Walters found Jeremy dead in bed on February 7, 1993. Jill Presley found Ashley dead in bed on August 7, 1994, as we outlined earlier. After the mysterious deaths of Irene Barron and her son in a South Sacramento home eight months apart, her only surviving child was tested for heart disease. We had two people in the family who had died suddenly in their sleep. We wanted to see if something weird had caused their deaths, Dr. John Gambelavicius said in a Sacramento Superior Court. Although the May 1993 exams proved negative for Ashley Barron, then three, she later became the third to die in bed. Like her brother, Jeremy, she was four when she died. A pediatric cardiologist for Kaiser Permanente, Gambelavicius said Ashley was referred to him by the Barron's family pediatrician in May of 1993. At the time, the Sacramento County Coroner's Office was baffled by the deaths of Irene and Jeremy Barron. Detectives strongly believed they had been murdered, but the coroner listed the cause as undetermined. On May 3, 1993, an electrocardiogram was performed on Ashley at Morse Avenue Kaiser, Gambelavicius said. Overall results were normal, he added, although he did find a very minor abnormality. Ashley returned to Kaiser on May 19th for a heart ultrasound. Again, the results were normal, Gambelavicius said. As an added step, the doctor recommended that Ashley take home a portable heart monitor, which would record her heart rhythm for 24 hours. The device would have allowed him to see what was happening to her heart while she slept. Unfortunately, the subsequent appointment was not kept, he said. We tried four or five times to get Mr. Barron to come back with Ashley. Jack Barron was reportedly more interested in filing his income taxes than he was in mourning his ex-brother-in-law, Pageant testified. In May 1995, after his immediate family had been mysteriously wiped out one by one, Jack Barron made a couple of phone calls to my office concerning his need for tax preparation help, said John Pageant, a CPA. Reluctantly, I did talk to Jack, Pageant said. I said, I want to know why you killed the closest people in your life. Barron denied killing anyone, Paget said. I told him, I'll see you in court, you bastard, said Paget. Barron continues to claim that the four died of natural causes. John Paget described how Barron's personality changed after the deaths. At Irene's funeral, Barron seemed genuinely grief-stricken, Paget said. Relatives rallied around the young husband trying to console him, he said. Paget also began sending him $100 a month to help support the kids, he said. At Jeremy's funeral, however, 
Barron made a startling comment. He made a comment to the effect that Jeremy died of a broken heart and he was better off in heaven with his mother, adding that Barron also seemed emotionless at Ashley's services. Prosecutor John O'Mara has previously said that Barron wanted to get out of his marriage, a union that has been described as troubled. O'Mara summoned Jim Nord, the court-appointed administrator of Butler's estate, who said it is now valued at more than $126,000. If Barron hadn't been arrested, he would have been the sole beneficiary of the estate, including two life insurance policies, Nord testified. Also taking the stand were several pathologists and detectives who explained why it took so long to make an arrest in the deaths. Although detectives believed Irene Barron and her children had been murdered, the Sacramento County coroner listed the cause of death as undetermined. Those cases were re-examined after the Solano County coroner found that Butler had been murdered. Janice Dean, who worked with Barron at a local supermarket during the period of the first deaths, testified he had been dissatisfied with his marriage. Dean said she regarded Barron as a friend like all the other guys working the night shift. But while he was always friendly and polite to her, there were times when his conversation became a little too suggestive, Dean said. The alleged incidents occurred both before and after Irene Barron's death, Dean testified. After his wife's death, Barron asked Dean if she would like to go to Tahoe with him for a weekend, she said, but she refused. Dean said Barron countered her refusal by assuring her he wasn't interested in a relationship, all he wanted was sex. Few of the comments attributed to Barron were more damaging than the one he supposedly made to his mother's neighbor, Margaret Hawes, after he reported finding his mother's body. Jack said the bruises on his mom's face were similar to the bruises on Irene's face when she died, Hawes testified. Asked by O'Mara if he had made such a comment, Barron said no. Barron testified that although he had looked at his mother's face when he found her lifeless, the situation with his wife's death was different. Her body was discovered by a neighbor while Barron was at work. By the time he got home, the residence had been sealed off by detectives who didn't allow him inside until her body, found in a bedroom, had been taken out in a body bag. If Barron actually made this statement, it would prove he saw his wife Irene after she was dead. Of course, Barron denied he ever made that statement in the first place. What's interesting is the first paramedic to arrive at Mrs. Butler's house the day she died said he didn't observe any bruises on the mother. And under cross-examination, Jack said he didn't see any bruises on his mother either, Romero said. How could he then say that she had bruises like Irene? Barron also insisted that he and his mother got along well during the last week of her life. He contradicted the pre-trial testimony of Carol Moreno, an out-of-state friend of Butler's who stayed with the mother and son the week right before Butler's death. Moreno testified there was tension between Butler and Barron. The whole time I was there, I can't remember one time he was kind to her, said a kind word, was polite to her. He was surly, belligerent, and never smiled. Butler, on the other hand, was kind towards her son, she said. Butler also told Moreno that she was concerned about her son's frittering away the insurance money he had received, Moreno said. Butler had decided to confront her son, and ask him to move out. Jack's mother had planned the confrontation for February 27, 1995, the day she turned up dead. According to her testimony, Moreno ended her visit on February 25th when Butler drove her to the Oakland airport. 
Marino didn't testify at the trial, but her previous sworn statements were admitted into the record. A forensic pathologist, Brian Peterson, performed an autopsy on Butler. Peterson concluded that Butler had been smothered to death. Peterson reviewed the autopsy reports on Barron's other family members. He believed that Irene's physical findings were consistent with an asphyxial suffocation similar to Butler's. He agreed that the causes of Jeremy and Ashley's deaths could not be determined. When Gregory Reber, the forensic pathologist who had performed Ashley's autopsy, learned of Butler's autopsy, he re-examined Irene's and Jeremy's deaths. Dr. Schmunk, who had performed the autopsies on Irene and Jeremy, suggested this be done as well. Schmunk had left Reber's medical group by this point. Reber agreed with Dr. Schmunk's conclusion that the cause of Jeremy's death could not be determined, but Reber disagreed regarding Irene. Reber noted that the photographs from Irene's autopsy had never been printed, and prints show greater bruising and traumatic injuries than was evident from the negatives. In an addendum to Irene's autopsy report, Reber concluded she died of probable traumatic asphyxia. This meant chest and or neck compression and suffocation. Two other pathologists in Reber's medical group agreed with this conclusion. In a November 1999 pretrial hearing, Barron's best friend, David Allen Bednarchik of Mount Shasta, described him as very structured. He said Barron became frustrated if his structure was upset in any way. Bednarzik, a Union Pacific locomotive engineer, said they met about 18 years earlier through their mutual interest in trains. Barron, an only child, later lived with his mother, but remained angry at his dad because of the circumstances involving him as a boy, Bednarzik said. Roberta was very frugal. She thought Jack was too free with his money, he said. She didn't like that he spent a lot of money on the hobby of the model trains. But Jack cared for his mom very much, Bednarzik said. It was a very caring, clingy relationship, where they were the only two each other had. His sworn statements were made part of the record. A cardiologist who treats adults, Stephen Correa, testified for the defense. He measured Ashley's QTC interval, finding its longest point to be 0.51 and its average to be 0.482. Based on this evidence and the circumstances of Ashley's death and the deaths of her mother and brother, Dr. Correa stated that in the absence of any other obvious cause of death, sudden cardiac death due to familial long QT syndrome is the etiology of these deaths. The fact that Irene's mother, Norma Paget, had an elevated QTC interval further supported his opinion. Dr. Correa did not view Butler's death as relevant to his opinion because he was, quote, looking at the deaths with the question of familial causes, which doesn't make the most sense because the children could have inherited the disease from Jack's side of the family as well. Although, if the deaths were due to a heart problem, the odds that Irene Pageant and Roberta Butler would both carry the genetic traits that led to this condition are astronomical. Barron took the stand in his own defense, filling the courtroom with his version of events. For nine hours, he offered testimony that was markedly different from that of key prosecution witnesses who testified earlier. Again and again, Barron denied making incriminating statements that witnesses said he uttered before and after the deaths. At times, he wept and seemingly gasped for breath. Other times, he seemed on the verge of tears. At trial, Barron testified on direct examination about his relationship with Irene. 
Barron said that he and Irene had had only two minor disagreements during their marriage, that they never had arguments because they always discussed and talked about things, that their relationship was an everyday loving one, and that divorce had never been mentioned by either of them. On cross-examination, the prosecutor sought to counter this testimony. He began to ask Barron preliminary questions about Irene's letter. The following exchange immediately ensued. Defense Attorney Objection, Your Honor. I think the letter was previously excluded by the court after a hearing. The Judge I'll sustain that objection. The Prosecutor Your Honor, when he makes the statement that he never discussed the divorce with his wife, and here we have a letter where she says, The Court Counsel, let me take a look at the letter. Thank you. The Court Thank you. It appears to me appropriate cross-examination with regard to his previous statement about only two arguments. You may continue. The prosecutor then had Barron read the following sentences from the letter. It really upsets me when I hear you talk about divorce. I'm really sorry you're unhappy right now. I have a hard time believing that the only reason for this is my inability to keep the house exactly as you like it. It was draining on Mr. Barron, defense attorney Eulid Romero said. He was obviously tired after being on the stand for six hours the first day, then had to come back a second day for three more hours. It wasn't only tiring, but emotionally draining. He had to relive the facts of the case. With no witnesses to the alleged killings, Prosecutor John O'Mara has built his case on circumstantial evidence, including the defendant's purported comments. And Judge Michael T. Garcia had to decide whether the four were smothered, starting in June 1992, or whether they died of heart disease or other natural causes, as Barron maintains. April 15, 2000 Jack Barron was found guilty and sentenced to three consecutive life terms in prison, with no parole, for suffocating his wife, his son, and his mother. He was acquitted of murdering his daughter Ashley, whose 1994 death remains mired in controversy. Because the suffocations involved a specific circumstance of multiple murder, Barron automatically faces life imprisonment without parole. Relatives of the victim sobbed as Superior Court Judge Michael Garcia read the verdict after two days of deliberation. From the outset, Barron has claimed his relatives died of natural causes linked to a hereditary disease. Claiming he was convicted on, quote, fantasy evidence, Barron blasted Sacramento Superior Court Judge Michael T. Garcia for, quote, ignoring defense arguments that his loved ones died of natural causes. I have committed no crimes, Barron told the judge. Barron filed for a writ of habeas corpus based on the following. Improper admission of evidence because Irene's letter was read after previously being deemed inadmissible based on the letter amounting to hearsay evidence by a non-testifying witness. Due process, again for the admission of the letter. Confrontation clause, based on the fact that Barron didn't get to confront the witness, Irene, about the letter. Ineffective assistance of trial counsel based on the fact that the letter was admitted into evidence, although his lawyer did object. Sufficiency of the evidence, basically saying that the evidence used against him was invalid in each of the murders he was convicted of. The writ of habeas corpus was, of course, denied. He really seemed to focus on the letter, which I guess you grasp at every straw you can, but to me, even if the letter had never surfaced, 
there was still enough evidence to convict him on. Munchausen by proxy, maybe? According to FamilyDoctor.org, what is Munchausen syndrome by proxy? MSP is a mental illness. It is also a form of child abuse. It affects caregivers, especially caregivers of children. Mothers of small children are most often affected by this condition. Fathers or other caregivers can have it as well. What causes Munchausen syndrome by proxy? Doctors don't know what causes this mental illness. It may be the result of being abused as a child. I get that Barron liked the attention and sympathy, but he didn't have any previous symptoms before the murders. What are the symptoms of Munchausen syndrome by proxy? Symptoms that can help identify someone who has MSP can be hard to spot. There are certain personality traits and backgrounds that seem to be common. Many suffered mental, physical, or sexual abuse growing up, or they received love or attention only when they were sick. As adults, people with MSP are very interested in medicine. There's no evidence that Barron had any interest in medicine, although he may have spiked the babysitter's iced tea that we talked about earlier. They often work in the medical field. They can speak expertly about medical conditions. They always appear to be completely devoted to the well-being of their child. But to fake symptoms of illness in their child, they may do extreme things. These could include giving the child certain medicines or substances that will make them throw up or have diarrhea, heating up thermometers so it looks like the child has a fever, not giving the child enough to eat so it looks like they can't gain weight, adding blood to the child's urine or stool, and making up lab results. How is Munchausen syndrome by proxy diagnosed? The ethical issues involved in MSP make it hard to diagnose. Accusing a mother, father, or caretaker of intentionally creating symptoms or making a child sick is a serious matter. Medical professionals will look for symptoms and other incriminating evidence before doing so. One way to confirm suspicions of MSP is to separate the mother, father, or caregiver from the child, then see if the child's symptoms improve. Doctors can also evaluate medical records. Barron did not cooperate when the doctor wanted his daughter Ashley to wear a heart monitor at home. So in the end, we don't really know for sure if Barron's motivation was money or sympathy or both, and we'll probably never know. What we do know is that he robbed three, and let's be honest, four, beautiful people from living their best life. His wife Irene, for God's sake, his two children, and oh yeah, his own mother. Sometimes we pretend like our justice system is set up for rehabilitation. Sometimes it's set up for punishment, especially for murder. And I'm okay with that. After all, can we ever trust someone to be a productive member of society who murdered his wife, two kids, and mom? I'll wait for your answer. Barron apparently didn't plan to end his killing spree with his loved ones as he plotted to kidnap country singer Winona Judd and kill her family. RadarOnline.com revealed Barron's desperate attempt to be freed from prison despite the conviction. Barron's threats before his prison sentencing were so terrifying that Judd and her family were kept under 24-hour guard. The singer's ex-husband, Arch Kelly, told Star Magazine in 1999 that he believed Barron was the man who made a phone call threatening to kill him and their son, Elijah. Arch, this is Jack. Kelly told Star of the chilling message, I'm going to get you and Elijah, 
so you better watch out. Kelly continued, I think this man was going to kill me and Elijah and kidnap Winona. My son and I were next on his list. I think he wanted to do away with us so that he and Winona could live forever together. There you go. Jack and Winona forever. I think he did it for the money. Let me know what you think at exploringevil at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, friends and enemies. Thanks, Connor, for the show suggestions. I want to ask you to subscribe to the show so you won't miss a single episode, write a review, and give us a five-star rating. And check out Cryptique if you're into the paranormal, and have a great evening. If you suspect someone you know as Munchausen by proxy, it is important that you notify a healthcare professional, the police, or Child Protective Services. Call 911 if you know a child who is in immediate danger because of abuse or neglect. You can also call the Child Help National Child Abuse Hotline at 1-800-4-A-CHILD, 1-800-422-4453. Crisis counselors are available to help you figure out your next steps. All calls are anonymous and confidential.